Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is composer Lars Deutsch. First of all, the MLC, the Mechanical Licensing Collective, which is something that we talked about, oh, three or four episodes ago, announced that it collected a lot of unclaimed funds, $424 million worth from 20 digital music distributors. Here's the thing. This is unmatched royalties. In other words, they don't know where to send it. That's almost half a billion dollars that was earned by songwriters that they're never going to get paid for. Now, most of this comes from Apple Music and Spotify, although they're not the only ones. Again, there are 20 different ones. This illustrates why metadata is so important, and it's so important to get it right, because if you don't, you're not going to get paid. And guess what? It's a real hassle later to be able to change things, to update everything, so you do get paid. Here's why. With the MLC, the only one that can enter any data is the administrator. So if you're a songwriter and also the administrator of everything, not a problem. But if you happen to have TuneCore or a publisher who's also your administrator, it's completely up to them to make this work. So they have to fix it in order for you to get paid. There's another piece here. If the publishing administrator has not entered all the data or the data is incomplete, it benefits the publishing administrator because the money goes into a bucket, which then gets distributed to the publishing administrator based on the market share. And they get to keep 100% and not pay any royalties on it. So it's in their best interest to get the data wrong. Just to clarify, if you are a self-published songwriter, you are a person who wrote the song, who owns the song, and you're responsible for licensing and collecting the money, well, then you can go to the MLC. You should be signed up already if you're not. And you can make any changes and hopefully get paid. If you have an administration or a publishing deal, you have to get on with them in order for them to change everything, to change the data, to see if you're going to get any money. But it's something that you should look into. It's really important. There's a lot of money sitting there in a pot waiting for the songwriters to take ownership. have any questions or comments you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com don't forget about my music mixing primer and 101 mixing tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more one of the best things about music is when we have oh what many call happy accidents so in other words all of a sudden, you hear a song, you hear a sound, there's a patch on a synthesizer, there's a sound in your guitar that gives you new inspiration. We all look forward to things like that. One of the ways that a lot of people, especially keyboard players, get this is through arpeggiators. And arpeggiators, at least modern ones, have something called a random mode. That random mode will actually spit something out that you never would have thought of. And hopefully that will give you that spark, that light bulb that will go off. Well, synthesizers have actually gone beyond that somewhat. You can also have new patches generated in a different way from random parameters. And there's a couple of synths that do that. The Korg Op 6 and the Wave Station, 
both do that. So in other words, you'll have new patches that will pop up from this particular feature that hopefully will inspire you. Well, sometimes it gets too random and too out there. We got to dial it back. So a lot of the new synthesizers are coming out with something called probability. And what this allows you to do is assign a percentage on the events that will occur each time. So in other words, you can dial it in so there's an 80% chance that a certain note will play each time the sequence plays. And things like that actually work a little better when you get your arms around the sequence and make it a little less random. Now, we can take both randomization and probability another step. Brian Eno, and everybody knows Brian Eno. If you're in the music business, you know all about him. And you also know that he's somewhat of a free thinker and an outside-the-box thinker. Well, he does something called generative music, and it's a different type of randomization. So what you basically do is you give the program some parameters, and then you just let it go, and it creates within the parameters that you gave it. If you want to check this out, you actually can, because guess what? Brian Eno and his collaborator have put something out called Bloom. This has actually been in the market for about 10 years, but it's an iPhone app. I think it's only about $3.99, so it's fairly reasonable. You can also look at something called Endel, E-N-D-E-L. So Bloom and Endel, if you want to look at generative music, this may be a new way to go when it comes to randomization, although Brian Eno thought of it a long time ago. My guest this week is two-time Emmy winner Lars Deutsch, who was born into a non-musical family and was astounded when he discovered that a guitar actually needs tuning. From those humble beginnings, he went on from being a heavy metal guitarist, to singer, to a songwriter, to a master's in classical composition, to international performances of his classical works, lecturing on composition, and audio production. He's also become an in-demand mixer as well. Lars has scored over 200 films that have collected over 100 awards, and his songs are also in high demand. As an audio branding expert, he's created audio logos for a range of companies, including Adidas, Mercedes Formula One, Contact, Epson, and many more. During the interview, we spoke about the process of creating an audio brand logo, the reasons why he began mixing, his method for organizing samples, mixing on headphones, and much more. I spoke with Lars via Zoom, from a studio in Los Angeles. How did you get started in the business? I understand that you grew up in a family that wasn't musical. Not, not at all. My dad is a car dealer, and I, I, I grew up in a village of 130 people in the middle of nowhere in Germany. I always liked music, and... Um, my my bio like this this kind of like joke in there where you know like I, I i played guitar for two years and then i found out the guitar needs tuning that is actually true <laughs> and uh i still remember to this day when somebody explained to me you can actually tune that thing it was a revelation and um i just i don't know i just um i was drawn to it and i went to germany's a little more relaxed you can go to concerts when you're younger and and I just you know like I, I at some point uh, I went to a rock show and just so got me and I, I started playing guitar like crazy, and it was just on the tail end of me being this huge metalhead and listening to Ingrid Malmsteen and then you know I thought I would be this guitar hero and all you know all these things, and I very quickly moved into be more interested in in the writing and the storytelling, 
And I don't know why very early on, I, I had a feeling that in order to do this well, I should really learn classical music, which is my parents don't understand how that happened. I really don't know why I was thinking that, but it was, was very lucky I did. And I started practicing and, you know, like basically aiming for a degree in classical music as somebody who didn't have parents who are music teachers and who was not a virtuoso at a young age or something like this. And it was just then a lot of practicing, a lot of learning. And I was, I was lucky I, I made it all the way to study classical composition. It must have been difficult for you to get the language and vocabulary of classical music, especially coming from metal, where, I mean, just the history alone could take a lifetime to learn. So how did you deal with that? Um, so I am, I am very hardworking and I'm obsessive and I, I, I don't like to lose. And uh, that's, that's 80% of the story, really. But I, you know, I had a guitar teacher at some point, then I, you know, I pivoted to classical music. And I tried to pick up as much as I could, but I was also lucky. I wrote a piece uh, with, a, like, there was a wonderful opera singer in my hometown. And I wrote a piece that was essentially modal for two solo voices and synthesizer. And it was just winging. Like, I, I, was, I just did this by ear. And that really, really helped to open the door um, to a classical degree because the one of the professors really liked that piece. And then I basically, I it's you know, one of those things. I showed up last minute in the semester. I was accepted last minute. And there were a lot of people who in the first year were far ahead of me with the language, with the experience. And it took about... Uh, yeah, a year or so until until I felt more comfortable. Was this in the UK? Yeah, that was in London. Yeah, I went to Middlesex University for a bachelor's degree and City University for a master's. Mm. And City is basically um, Guildhall. Guildhall doesn't have, uh, or Guildhall used to have a master's degree, and then when I went, they didn't have any more. So basically, the Guildhall undergraduate people would often transferred to city. I don't know exactly how they're connected, but that was basically it. Mm, yeah. So you felt like you were behind everybody, and I could understand that, you know, when you first started. What did you do to catch up? I mean, I just, I really, I, I love learning. I do care. And I basically, I just, I listened and practiced and soaked up every book. And I was the, you know, when, like the teacher suggests, a, a, a book in passing and says, well, you know, this one is only available in this one library in London. And I was the student who went to that one library in London and basically you couldn't take it out. And I studied, you know, stayed the day, read the book and learned my stuff. And so it's really, it's really, it was just a lot of hard work. And it was also, I don't know, like I, I understood I was behind. I think that helps a lot. So I wasn't I don't know, I wasn't high and mighty about it. I was just very, very excited and lucky to be there. And that, that really helps. When you left school, how did you get started then as a professional? So after doing um, classical music for five and a half years full-time and a lot of it avant-garde music, I just wanted to do that kind of big, fun pop album and I wanted my distorted guitars back. And so I went back uh, home to Germany and I basically, you know, like the, the odd teaching gig here and there and, you know, played in bands and did a couple of 
things that didn't really go very far. And then I got a position as a lecturer. And so I, I, I taught um, basically harmony, melody, composition, and every now and then a little bit of early music education and a little bit of guitar. And while I did this, I started to work on my film contacts. So I you know, basically offered every film student to score their music for free, uh, score their film for free. And I've done a lot of really, really bad short films. And that's, that's, and then I want to say one or two years in, um, I found somebody in Berlin who was working on a commercial and I really liked the, it was like a, like a PSA. And I really thought the script was really funny. And um, yeah, I don't know, I, I applied for it, I got it, I scored it. And then it was the first time that something I did had a major actor on it and then it played in the cinema. And that was a big deal, very excited. And um, a couple of weeks later, my first premiere of something else, and uh, they had moved my score around not where it was intended to be and messed up some technical things and it was it was just horrific so my first really positive experience in the cinema and the really horrific experience were very close to each other mm. and then basically i i moved to berlin and it, it was a slow process to to build the reputation the credits and the skills to to become um you know more sought after as a as a film composer what was your process there's so many people that want to be a film composer and many of them follow much of the same footsteps, you know, doing whatever student films and whatever they can. I can see the similarity there, but sometimes it just stops there. So what, what was your process? I, I think one thing is that I, I'm kind of like violently independent, which really works for me and against me both. And, um, I, I'm a storyteller, so I just happen to be, um, I just happen to use music and now as well as sound to, to storytell. So relatively early on when I was, when I still was learning and when I still made a lot of beginner's mistakes, I already made a lot of calls, which are really, really about the story where I kind of like sacrificed the beauty of the music and where I didn't score to look good, but I scored to make the film work. And I think that um, if, if you are a storyteller as a filmmaker and you see that, you see that somebody is really 100% on your side and not out for themselves, that makes a big difference. So between me being able to, to serve their film and willing to basically do everything to just uh, be there for them and working really hard, I think that's kind of the, that's the trick. But it's also, you know, when we talk here, this is like a, we, we just spend a minute on this, but it's also, you know, 10 years in real life. So, um, is, uh, it's more persistence than genius. I have a friend, Chris Boardman, who's also a film composer, and he did a major film with Mel Gibson. I can't think of the name of it right off the top, but I saw the film before I met Chris. And years later, I kind of discovered that he did the score, and I said to him, you know, I don't remember anything from it. And he said, oh, thank you. That's the best compliment you could give me. Yeah, yeah that's true. I, I love movies and I'm friends with a lot of filmmakers. I've produced a couple of music videos and I, I feel confident in that medium as well. And if I go and see a movie, I don't want to have a score battling for attention. 
every now and then I think, oh, this is an interesting choice that serves the film. And then I remember it. That's like one out of a hundred films I see. And that's great. But usually if, if something catches my attention with the score, that's not a good sign. So yeah, I, I agree with what your friend says there. Like you, well, it's also, it's something when you, when you kind of, when you teach film composition and also mixing for film, it's this, it's almost like a, you know, you imagine you have a real stage where the actors are acting and then the orchestra or whatever you use is somewhere far behind the stage. And it's also kind of like a mixing process. And I think that people watch Star Wars or something like this and they hear the big, the big theme and they think that's film music. But m most of the time, film music is that quiet stuff that happens like, you know, 500 feet behind the stage. And so to do that well and to hit the story points without calling too much attention to yourself is, is, is very important. I know you've done a lot of commercials as well and musical logos brand logos things like that that's a different yeah. mindset doing that from film scoring it's it's very different and my my workflow is completely different and what i found works for me is that anything that is longer and bigger so i wrote a classical piano piece that um at some point it, it would have been uh, performed at the national opera hall in in new york last year without COVID. But that's a 20-minute piece, so there's there's a real architecture behind that. So with that, working on that, it's it's a matter of, you know, like drawing up charts and planning out something really big. And if you go into a commercial or an audio logo, it's a lot of attention to detail, but it's more like it's it's not even a Polaroid, it's it's a part of a Polaroid. So you're kind of like you focused on a very succinct emotion and I go from being an architect for the longer piece where really I use time to work for me to basically thinking more in terms of immediate space for something really short, like an audio logo. And what I try when I can, when they have a, uh, when a company has a voiceover, like a professional voiceover that they use on a regular basis and there was one company where, where we casted people all around the world. I tried to build an audio logo where that person saying the name of the company is basically the uh, the landing point, the end of it. So I'm kind of writing 70% of the music and the last 30% is just somebody saying the name of the company. And I kind of try to mold this sound design, post-production and composition into one. And um, I like it. Which is the most fun for you? I, it's a lot of cup, like one thing that I love just is, is so I co-write with a lot of people, co-write songs with a lot of people. And I, uh, I just love when, you know, when there's somebody that actually plays guitar or an instrument shows up with an idea and you can just actually do it in the room. That's one of the things that where you just write and where I can, because I can just speak music and can just without touching anything, say, Hey, try this chord, do this. And you know, like something like this and the, the energy in the room. The other thing that I really like is if you can create something, like if you have enough time to to make something sound really unique and really cool, and that can be an audio logo, can be commercial, or it can be a pop song. So it's, I don't know, I, I, I just like all all the aspects really, that's, that's yeah. what it boils down to. Do you compose on guitar? I do if I need it to be on guitar, or if it's like a singer-songwriter pop song. Or anything else it does it slows me down yeah it seems like every film composer is if they haven't started on piano or some sort of keyboard they've they're well versed in it 
And when I think about it, it's like, well, especially doing orchestrations and things like that, it's very difficult to do on a guitar. It, it is, and it's there's there's something like just the strumming, strumming on a guitar. If you do uh, develop a song, there's just something there's a flair and a feel about it. And when you, you know, like with a couple of cool rhythms, that is just wonderful for this part of it. But for me, just being able to separate the bass note from the main chords, uh, which is really difficult on a guitar, um, it, it is a big issue. I have an interesting story for this. When I, when we did, um, when I had ear training in university, one of my professors says that was okay for a guitarist. Basically, meaning that was really bad, but because you are a guitarist, it was okay. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I get it. You mentioned mixing and audio before, and I understand that's part of your repertoire now, right? You're a mixer and an audio guy as well as a composer. Yeah, it's, it's, and I've far too late, far too late. I had uh, friends that studied with me that very early on in while we're doing classical music figured out mixing and how important basically sound itself is. And for the longest time, I was a pen on, just pen and paper, let's just write the music person. But over, I don't know, the last 15 years or so, more and more of my film clients just ask, hey, do you mind, can you mix this? Can you do this? And I also noticed that when you could call yourself a producer nowadays, like as a music producer, you basically, you're sending a 90% finished premix of something. Meaning if you're not able to really almost have this thing sound release ready the way most sound engineers work and think now, you're not handing over something unfinished. You're handing over something that is pretty much finished to the best of your ability. So it's kind of, I don't know, I sometimes wish it would be like this. I don't know, like I wish I could focus a little bit more just on the kind of production, the making. But once I figured out how, may, how much trouble I run in if I deliver something that is not already in its pocket, I, I kind of like, I, you know, I, I, I developed my skills and then both pop music, but also with um, film, I get more and more um, projects. And now I get projects where like one of my ones that I like to mention was where somebody hired me and said, hey, we have James Earl Jones for this project. And I think he just turned 90. I'm not 100% sure. And they, they basically said he sounds like for 10 seconds, he sounds amazing, like he like you, you expect him to sound. For the other 50 seconds, he doesn't sound like you would expect James Earl Jones to sound. Can you do something? And so then it's kind of, it's almost a, my storytelling now extends into the audio, post-production audio world where I'm trying to keep his voice almost emotionally in this authority that you expect from him for the entire time. And so it's kind of, it's, it's become an extension of my storytelling. And I think that's also why I get booked. Like I did a, um, there was a show, I think it was 2018 downtown LA. And it was uh, all these um, Asian American or Asian rappers. And it was a, like a big festival and they wanted to have a broadcast version of that for Chinese TV. But all the mics that faced towards the audience didn't pick up. Um, there were all kinds of technical issues. And basically, the audio they had wasn't good technically, but it also wasn't the party that people really had on the day. So kind of my job is like two things. One is like a sound engineer, and the other thing is to rec recreate the party. And 
that's kind of like I don't know story almost storytelling thing. Um, I think got me uh, a lot of work and makes people hire me again. You talked about mixing for film and also pop music, and both of those are way different. The approach. So, how do you wrap your head around that? Um, I I I uh, owe Iko a lot of gratitude here. Iko is a fantastic sound engineer who's mixed uh, a lot of my pop music. And one thing I did with film music a lot was I I tried to get this emotion out of a diffuse kind of almost messy approach. Like you were in a concert hall and the, the, the sound washes over you, like the wall of sound, like Oasis kind of thing in a classical way. And it was messy. And that's kind of the way how I hit the, the old virtual instruments and, but also the way how I can make like a very, I don't know, like an emotional wall. And so I kind of painted my, like, like my workflow was just almost the opposite of pop music or pop music needs. So when I, when I moved to the US and I started to produce my first artist and my first album relatively early on, I met Irko and he mixed a song for me. And what he turned out of the files I delivered to him was amazing. And he basically cleaned up all the mud, brightened, sharpened, and made everything sound so much better. And um, so basically, I, I, that was a benchmark. And I, I, at some point, I understood that what I do with that mud is still very useful in certain aspects, but I really need to start developing a new way of thinking and a new process for commercial mixes and pop music and stuff like this. And so now um, I think a lot of the post-production, audio post-production is very similar now to pop music in, in terms of the voice is incredibly bright, compressed, and a lot of the production techniques are similar. So it wasn't for me so much to get pop and, and post-production in shape. It was more like getting my being composer first transition to sound engineer uh, clearer, like the separation. And it's kind of, you know, when you arrange something, you understand that the, the, the piccolo flute played at this quietest and its lowest will not be heard behind the brass section going triple forte. It's very, very obvious, but as a, for some reason, I'm not the brightest guy sometimes. For some reason in sound engineering, like I, it took me a while to figure out to create the space for everything. And I'm still, I'm, you know, it's, it's still, it's, it's always a process, especially since like the modern pop production is changing every day. That's something that we've all struggled with for a long time. I, and really, if you listen to the British pop, They've always been way ahead of us in terms of layering spaces and environments and things like that. I mean, we're catching up now, but you know, they've always been ahead of us in doing that. I mean, I see a lot of successful British artists. I, I also see a lot of American sound engineers being at the forefront of everything. But yeah, I, 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 do you have an artist in mind that I should check out for that? Like somebody that you really... Like. Oh, I mean, really, you can go back to the 80s and start to, you know, and listen to anything coming out of, of Britain that, then, and you can hear how far they're ahead, ahead they were. Where here, you know, we'd have a chamber or a plate, a, you know, tape delay, and over there, they'd be talking about, you know, two AMSs and, yeah. you know, an EMT 250 and, and you know, whatever. So the, they've been way ahead of us on, on those things for a long time. Although now it's, it's pretty even, I have to say. Everybody's... Everybody knows the same tricks, I think. 
my my composition professor, so classical music composition professor, played a Tom Jones song for us in one of the classes, and basically to make a point about um, space. And he said, like, so which what size of room is this snare in? Where is his voice in? And this and that, and basically just to to make us aware of spatial. Um, you know, placing, and, and I thought it was really interesting. And I think to this day, I'm still overdoing this. I have like, I think I have 10 reverbs. I have the new Mac, Mac Pro just so I can run all the crazy stuff. Like my, it's not really a template. I, I wouldn't say it's a template because a template sounds a lot more organized than what it is. It's just all my favorite reverbs and delays and all of this and all in there. And I, I still to this day, want to have that one snare hit somewhere that is in a completely different space than the rest of the song and yeah yeah i, I like that kind of stuff well okay let's go there for a second so what are your favorite effects plugins so recently i got the the hofa iq reverb 2 and um that i think sounds amazing but i also like i'm a i'm a huge fan of the valhalla vintage bird with one of my i'm giving away one of my favorite things on the planet is to have the verse in the 70s set up and then open up to the modern in the chorus, like automated. And it's just because the 70s makes everything so heavy and thick. And it's like such a, it's such an easy but beautiful trick to just like blow the roof off. I think everybody that works a lot with audio is tremendously thankful that there is Sooth or Sooth 2 now, which is which is amazing. I'm a big fan of the, like, to, to t take something that's not as well-known, maybe the newfangled audio stuff. All of it, I think, is, is excellent. And it has its very own sound that I really, really like. And um, we have a song on, on this, um, this artist, Amina, where, where the first single is coming out for this album, but there's a song on there where I use uh, a lot of short strings and pre prepared piano, and it all sounds... Um, it all sounds good and it all sounds like a band in a room. And then I use this basically really heavy, um, transient shaping mastering plug only on the string section, but like totally overdo it. And it sharpens everything. So these are real, real samples of real instruments that all live and breathe. But this, this plugin tightens that up and gives it a crunchiness and a explosiveness, which I, which I really, really enjoy. So I'm a yeah, big, big fan of that. Um, what else? I yeah, I've been using Altivert for all my audio posts for a long time, which I really like. FabFilter Q3 is on pretty much everything. Um, Barry Rudolph showed me uh, Transformers, and I I w so wanted to buy his Transformer box. He wouldn't sell it, and then I found out that. The guy who gave him the Transformers actually has a plug-in with the exact Transformer in it. So that Kazrock True Iron is... Fabulous, isn't it? Yeah, it's fabulous. And on strings, to make strings happy, uh, heavy, it's it's fantastic. So, um, And the other one I use for that is Saturn 2, which I think is amazing as well. Fab um, I think that's... And then there's all kinds of, of course, samples, like sample banks. No end to the sample banks. Well, yeah, let's go there for a second. So... I know budgets are a problem for many people these days, unless you're on a, a, a major film or, you know, something high budget. Uh, what sample libraries are you using? What do, what are your favorites? So one thing that has been incredibly useful for me is Addictive Drums XO, 
which is basically um, it organizes all your drum samples into this visual cloud, and then you can switch through them really quickly. And I that is a, I mean, I I basically when I saw this, I I bought it like ten seconds later, and then literally went to get a coffee, and then I went back, and in my mind I was working on on an album, and I had six songs, and I was like, I tried it on all six, it made it on all six, and I think that's a really really great way to organize samples. When it comes to the classical stuff, I really like orchestral tools. They do very, um, it's very alive still what they do. So when they sample a, a violin or they have a less expensive, I think it's called Ember or something where they have a string quartet that is tuned down a, a fifth. And that just is thick and beautiful. And that is not, as expensive. Their other stuff is kind of full range composer expensive. I think if you wanna if you wanna dip your toe into uh, composing the East West Composer Cloud, you pay two hundred bucks and you get to try everything. I do have some issues with a lot of things. They kind of pre they kind of contain everything in, in this cloud of of their reverb and the compression or something. So you kind of sometimes need to free those samples a little bit. But for considering that all software is rented anyway, for 200 bucks, you, you know, you have, you know, more than anybody could have dreamt of 10 years ago. So that's. I read somewhere that you do a lot of your mixing on headphones. Are you using something like Abbey Road Studio 3 from Waves or something like that? No, I, th I think the biggest difference here is that I love, I have the Focal Clear Pro, which I absolutely love. And um, so I, uh, for the pop stuff, I like to master with Gene Grimaldi and uh, I, you know, I go to his studio and it's always, it's always really interesting when you work on something for such a long time and then you walk into that room and see how it translates. Or if you walk into another studio and with the, for me, with the Focal Clear Pro, it really started to translate everywhere pretty well. Uh, so I'm not using any uh, plugin before. I've just, this week is my, I'm trying Sonar Works for my room here. My room is horrible. Um, but I have no like serious experience. What I, what I do when I, when I have the time is really, it's like if you, the, the, the listener cannot see this, I'm showing you three different headphones, which are right here, always to check. Then I have my speakers here, the car, the iPhone, the laptop, and I, I do get a first mix going and then I rotate a lot between the different devices. And that's kind of... Gene's an old friend of mine. He does my mastering too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, he, he really did something awesome for me and the artists. So we have, you know, with COVID and like everything gets stretched out and we mastered first half of the album, and then we went back for the second half. And he called me before we went back for the second half, and he said, hey, I hope you don't mind, I did. Like, I remastered three of the songs so they fit better with the rest. And it's just, I, I love stuff like this, you know? And it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan, and I, I, I hope he's not listening to this. Of course, I always sit next to him and look over his shoulder and try to figure out what the hell he's doing. Yeah. And the changes, like when I see the numbers and something, the changes are so small and it always makes, it just always works. And um, yeah, I don't, uh, yeah, it, I don't know. I have to go, I have to look over his shoulder a couple of hundred more times, I think. 
That's what I love about mastering engineers. They can do so little and it makes such a big difference. Yeah, it's, it's, um, and with him, when I was, uh, when I went to uh, his studio for the first time, I saw all those, um, the Hofer plugins that he used. Yeah. And I, I didn't know who Hofer was. And um, after seeing that, I, you know, investigated. And um, since then, I've like, I, I taught classes at Hofer and, Hofa is going to have an interview with me on Thursday, and it's it's kind of I don't know it's it's kind of interesting that in in like as a German you have to go to to a mastering studio in Burbank to find out about a the, the, the number one mastering company in Germany. You know, it's, well, I speak with Gene often, so I'll mention that we talked. Yeah, yeah, send him my greetings. Yeah, definitely. All right, last question, Lars. And thank you so much for your time. What's the best piece of business advice? that someone imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way? My, my favorite piece is um, one of my composition teachers said that uh, imagine the, the guy you want to reach or the, you know, lives on a, on a hill and has this house on a hill at this mansion and you are the person who's throwing these little pebbles against the window and if you look left and right, there's all these people throwing these little pebbles and you're all just annoying the guy. He said, the trick is you build your own hill, you build your own house, and at one point that guy will come over and he will need sugar. And um, I think that's, that was the best piece. I, so you kind of need to, like, while you have your eye on the price, on the industry and all of this, you need to build something of your own that works on its own. And um, which also, in a way, kind of says, like, you know, when the time is right, the time is right. There might be, it might be too early for you to throw the, these little pebbles and I, I really like that. Maybe something else I would like to say is that I, um, I find that a lot of people like have the same journey as I have that when you get older, you love music, but at some point you don't have the, the energy to deal with some of the BS. And I, I meet so many wonderful people who really care about the audio and they pick up if you really care as well. And so I, I think that somewhere at the center of it, it still needs to be about the music. And if it is, uh, there's really good people who will pick up that it's about the music for you. You can find out more about Lars at LarsDeutsch.net. That's Lars Deutsch, L-A-R-S-D-E-U-T-S-C-H, all one word, dot net. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Hey.